0: This week on Heads and Tails, we interviewed Jay Fraga, whose post-concussion symptoms forced him to retire from his BMX racing career. Jay has been struggling with post-concussion symptoms for years and was inspired to create the Knockout Project, which is a blog dedicated to raising concussion awareness and serves as a community of healing for athletes suffering from post-concussion symptoms. Before we get into this episode, I'd like to remind you guys to give us a like on Facebook, follow us on Instagram at Heads and Tails, that's heads as in your head, the letter N, and then tails spelled T-A-L-E-S. Same thing goes on Twitter. Just add a pod at the end, and also most and most importantly, uh, go over to iTunes and subscribe and give and leave us a five-star review. Uh, I also want to give a reminder uh, to go over to headsandtails.org backslash chianti to support our episode 13 uh, guest uh, in his uh, journey to making it to the Paralympic uh, Games as a track and field athlete. Um, without further ado, meet Jay Brockett. This is Kevin Somm, and you're listening to the Heads and Tails podcast. We share stories of perseverance and inspiration in sports and in life. This week on Heads and Tails, I'm interviewing uh, Jay Fraga. Uh, he's a retired BMX racer and uh, he retired after suffering his 10th concussion and he's also the founder of the knockout project Which is a blog dedicated to concussion awareness and serves as a community of healing for athletes suffering from post-concussion syndrome And he's also uh, a guy who has some of the freshest fades I've ever seen in my life And for those <laughs> of you who don't know what a fade is, it's uh, a type of haircut style, but he's always looking fresh Um, so Jay, can you start by, uh, talking about how you got into BMX racing? And I was looking through some of the knockout project archives and, you know, you grew up around bikes and stuff like that. So you just give us a background on kind of how you got into
1: the sport. Sure. Sure. Well, first I wanted to thank you for having me. And, um, you know, I kind of alluded to it today when I was talking to some people, but I kind of wish that I was interviewing you because your story, um, is, is kind of an unbelievable one. And it's, uh, it's one that, uh. Uh, kind of inspires me and whatnot but um so anyway thank you for having me um yeah no problem it's about time
0: yeah
1: yeah so I got interested in um BMX sort of um by accident I I uh my dad um when I was really young you know um a baby even had motorcycles he always had motorcycles and he had street bikes he had dirt bikes and um i was just captivated by them and um so we would uh you know when i was really really young man probably three years old there's a, there's actually a picture of me and him um that a photographer for a newspaper took and uh the two of us are heading somewhere on a street bike ride which would be crazy and sort of unheard of now and i think people would call the cops but it was uh, sort of a different time so um but i loved how I fell on, on, the motorcycle and I really couldn't get enough of it. So, um, as I got a little bit older, he and I would watch motocross races, um, on TV and I was really into motocross and I wanted to race motocross. So that so much by the time that I was like six or seven, you know, I would just pester him relentlessly, um, to, to get a bike or yeah, to get a motorcycle and start racing. Um, and so, What actually happened was I was about seven years old and, um, you know, I I guess I had strep throat, came home from school and my mom took me to the doctor's office and doc said, you've got, you know, strep and wrote me up a script. So we went to the local um, pharmacy at that point and there was a copy of BMX Action magazine staring at me in the uh, in the rack. And when I opened it up, man, it was just like the earth stopped, you know, it stopped moving. So um, it took I left, I left the, the store with that magazine and I read it till it disintegrated. And, um, I had a uh, subscription in pretty short order. And then, so that was about, I would think I was about seven when that happened. And then, um, I was 10 when I raced my first race, it took a while of, uh, badgering my parents and whatnot. Cool. So you didn't even care that it didn't have a motor on it? No, it was, you know, it was, it was kind of weird. I mean, uh, At first, my dad had given me the choice to race motocross or race BMX. And um, when he showed me the starter bike, the motorcycle that they were thinking of, it was... um you know, it was kind of whack. It was, uh, it was like an older, early 1970s, like dual sport trail and road bike. And, uh, it was tiny, but it had like, uh, directionals on it. And I was into like super beast looking right. with knobby tires. And so I, uh, I was like, well, we're not going to do that. We're <laughs> going to do BMX. So, cool. uh, it was the next best thing and it was, it worked out to be pretty awesome.
0: Awesome. So what did you love more what did you love most about uh, BMX as a sport? And then also, what injuries did you sustain in addition to the eventual concussions that you mm-hmm. had?
1: Well, um, I think that it took me a while. I got my ass kicked for a while in it. and Like and competitively? It, it, like Yeah, competitively. Okay. So, um, And I really didn't like that. Uh, it took me, man, it probably took me a couple of months to win like my first trophy then, uh, and what they usually do is you've got an eight man gate that's full of riders and they trophy to third or something like that. And it, and it took me that much time to trophy finally, which was like a big accomplishment. And, um, I guess that what I started to really like about it, other than the lifestyle, um, you know, and being around, um, kids that I guess you uh, were on the same wavelength with was, um, it was an individual sport. And I started to realize that the more effort that I put in, um, I would get better. And I started to understand, um, the consequences of, of being either a slacker or, you know, putting your head down and, and really striving to meet a goal. So by the time I started to win, um, it really, it worked out to be sort of this, uh, I was sort of a mental monster, you know, I felt like I was invincible. And I think that a lot of other athletes who um, perform well or are successful athletes, that's a, the psychological uh, component is the, probably the most important one. You just don't feel like you can be beaten. So um, that's really what I liked about it the most. And that was different from the individual or the uh, team sports that I participated in. Um, as far as injuries go. Um, you know, it was, it's funny, you know, when you're younger, you kind of flop around and you crash or guys run into you or you run into somebody else and you go over. But as you start getting older, the injuries are a lot more like what you would see in a car accident. You know, I mean, um, on the, on the Olympic level, you'll see guys, you know, crash and blow out a bunch of ribs and collapse lungs and things like that. Um, you know, people getting knocked out is pretty fairly common. You know, I don't want to give BMX a bad name or anything like that, but it's a fast sport. And with the advent of track design and stuff, um, paved turns and things like that have come out, the jumps have gotten bigger and things like that. So you get busted up pretty good. So I've had, um, you know, a lot of broken fingers and things like that. I mean, a lot of really intense bruises and stuff where you just can't even walk. You're just like, you know, your legs black or, uh, that kind of thing. I've, uh, I've broken probably more ribs than anything else. Uh, which is not super awesome. That's probably the worst feeling in the world. And then, you know, of course, on top of that um, was a new element, um, you know, concussions. And we never really understood, um, you know, when you whacked your head, what I guess the implications were when we were young. So, you know, we. Uh, you had mentioned, you know, 10 concussions that it took to, to get me to retire from the sport. But those are really only the ones that we know about. And those were the ones that were either a full blown knockout or pretty close to it. And in talking uh, and learning uh, with doctors, um, I kind of started to realize that I had no idea how many I really had, and that I couldn't count how many times I'd hit my head hard enough to see stars or a flash, um, which we now know, is you know sort of no bueno that's that's potassium streaming out of brain neurons and sort of it signals the beginning of that whole metabolic cascade of concussions so the actual amount of concussions that i have is probably way high you know high yeah, double i think t- i'm at least at like 20
0: no i guarantee what I know now yeah
1: yeah you know which scary is too that i've got buddies um You know, Donnie Robinson um, is on the board of directors of the Knockout Project along with us, and um, he won bronze in 2008 in Beijing for Team USA. And Donnie would be the first one to tell you that he's probably sitting around 30, and that's verified, medically verified. So when we start to talk about how many other times we've been hit, that that number is pretty big, man. It's pretty spooky. Right.
0: Right. Um, didn't, didn't in one of your articles on the knockout project that you said that you had two broken legs at one point? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, um, and you can, you said that you'd rather have the two broken legs than the post-concussion syndrome. I thought that was uh, a pretty novel statement. And it's pretty, pretty,
1: pretty apropos. Well, so, so this sort of dovetails with the whole mission of, um, um, you know, of heads and tails, which is, which is kind of getting through adversity. Um, when I was 19, uh, I was in a car accident and we were hit in the middle of an intersection by um by somebody who was going like 70 miles an hour. Oh, and wow. uh yeah, and she T-boned us. And I was on the passenger side. Um, buddy was sitting in front of me and another buddy was driving, and um, you know, we we absolutely got smoked. The uh the passenger side door was touching the steering wheel and we got Whoa. rolled times. Yeah. So uh, I ended up getting cut out of the car with the Jaws of Life, which was not too super awesome. Um that was one of my concussions. And that was probably the first one that I ever was really out for a long time. I was out for about a half an hour. Um, and so when I woke up, they cut me out of the car. Um, I had two broken legs. My femur, my right femur, was really badly broken. And my left, um, the lower leg, the tib-fib, was, was pretty screwed up as well. So I spent actually spent a lot of time in a wheelchair. And then I had to learn how to walk again. And this uh, was
0: uh, during when you already had been uh, racing BMX.
1: Yeah, I started racing so when I was ten, and then um, it, towards the end of high school, I started kind of fizzling out. Uh, you know, we call it fumes, perfumes, and car fumes. You know, it was like <laughs> uh, cars and girls took over, and um, and so I went away to college, and, and when I was back for a break um, this thing happened. And so it sort of derailed everything that I had going on at that point. I was 19 going on 20 and, you, Do you know, remember of,
0: how it felt during that time, like knowing that uh, you were
1: struggling uh, and trying to walk again. And I'm sure you wanted it was to be terrible. out there riding too. Yeah. It, well, it was terrible. I wanted to be doing anything, you know? I mean, it, it, you went from being a, um, an able-bodied teenager who really had no concerns other than himself, uh, to, you know, rolling through the mall in a wheelchair after a couple of months and, you know, you'd see a girl that maybe you would have tried to say something to, um, you know, before that happened and people would look at you and then look away. And it really gave you sort of a um, distinct impression of what um, what a lot of people who have handicaps go through in this country. And it really was demoralizing. And it was the, up until the, you know, the post-concussion syndrome, it was the worst thing that I'd ever gone through by far. Um, and you know, it was, it was tough, but I think that it also, um, it gave me, uh, the knowledge and the early understanding that something that's so horrendous, um, can still get better, you know? And so it was a lot of hard work. I worked at it. I had a, um, a physical therapist that, uh, no lie was a Marine drill instructor at one point. And this was like maybe the worst guy to teach you how to walk again, because he was just such a hard ass. <laughs> no patience with you. Yeah, just no, kidding. no. And he didn't care if, you know, if it hurt, you know, they had to break adhesions in your, in your knees and legs and stuff like that. Um, so that accident, um, I didn't race again until I was in my late 20s. I wasn't able to climb on a bike. I wasn't able to really even pedal a bike. And so so in my late 20s until my late 30s, I raced, you know, with a left leg that was a half an inch shorter than my right leg, and I did it, you know, with, uh, you know, suspect wheels. But but I still did it, and I was still fairly successful at it. Um, so that was, that was pretty cool. Wow.
0: Um, that's awesome. Can you talk about um... – kind of like the culture of BMX and the culture of toughness. I, and we kind of mm-hmm. touched on this before about like the athlete's mindset about, you know, constantly pushing yourself and pushing the limits and being mentally tough and kind of what that uh, culture is like in BMX and also how that influenced your decision to, you know, ride with concussions and then kind of take us through, mm-hmm. you know, your concussions through your BMX career.
1: Yeah, sure. Um <clears throat> BMX has uh, the riders who stick with it tend to be pretty tough nosed. So, and I'm talking guys and girls, um, they're tough. They, you know, um, they thrive on being tough. They enjoy being known as tough. I certainly did. Um, and if I raced hurt, you know, talking about bones and things like that, um, you know, or bruises or banged up or whatever. Um, I generally took pride in the fact that you know, if somebody said, Oh my God, I can't believe that dude got up after that crash, you know, and went and finished, you know, I mean, even if you, even if the, you know, the uh, EMTs wanted to walk you off the track, you would always try to ride off, you know? Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And you'd give a little, th- you know, and everybody would kind of start clapping and, and, uh, you know, you'd give them a thumb, you know, thumbs up or a, you know, fist pump or something like that. And I think that, I think that the riders are really tough people. Um, but When when I was starting to get, you know, I guess I was I was probably faster than I had the skills for when I was older, you know, and so we call it a little bit like dragster in a potato patch syndrome. (laughs) It's real. It's real dangerous. Um, So when I started to crash um, in some of those bigger crashes, if I got knocked out, this was this was, you know, in the early to mid 2000s and there still really wasn't anybody talking about concussions. Um, and, and, you know, having been knocked out a couple of times, you knew that you knew it was a bad deal and you should go to the hospital and get checked out. Um, and so I would. But at that time, the the ERs weren't up to um, snuff medically, technologically or, you know, with knowledge. And, and they also, you know, an ER is a triage center where what they're trying to do is figure out who's the most screwed up person in there and get them addressed first. So I would go in there in my, you know, racing suit. I'd go in there with leathers on and my jersey covered in dirt, you know, or bleeding or whatever. And there'd be a dude with a gunshot wound, you know, in the bed across from me or whatever, because we'd go to the big level in trauma hospital here in Western Mass. And you can figure out real quick who's going to get top priority you know, between that and some dude sitting there and, you know, in a funky looking suit covered in dirt. So, so the doctors typically, you know, if they, if they told you, you had a concussion, and a lot of times they didn't, um, they really wouldn't give you any recommendations. There yeah. Was what no, would you do? Yeah. Yeah. it was uh, Follow up you? with your, your physician. And then you tell your physician, he's like, Oh, that's, that's bad. How are you feeling? You know? And, it, and there was no talk about return to play or return to race. Um, and so that was one of the things that as I started getting these things and you always kind of knew when you had one um I I described this weird sensation it almost felt like um it almost felt like uh I don't know if you've ever grabbed like a electric fence on a farm or something but it's a really low level current and it's just sort of a trickle but it always felt like this odd like electrical feeling in my head um it was almost like uh Uh, it's just very hard to describe, but, but it was like, I knew it. Yeah. You could tell, you know,
0: something's wrong, right?
1: You know, something's up. Yeah. It was like the hair would stand on end on your, on the back of your neck, the back of your head. And you just felt this odd sensation. So, um, I just, you know, going along, I guess I got, um, towards the end, I, I, I had a big one on the bike, um, which was my eighth and that was the one that actually retired me, um. But oh, okay. it, not the one that that um, screwed me up the worst. Actually, that eighth one was a bad one, and, and I was knocked out for not very long, probably ten seconds. But when everybody came out, you know, I had EMTs out there, and I had um, one of the guys that raced for me was actually in my moto, and he was a um, he was a, a lieutenant on um, one of the local big fire squads. So he came out, um, and man. I couldn't talk. I was slurring my words. Um, the back of my left eye was burning. I mean, and it was like burning like somebody poured gas on it and lit it on fire. And so that now we know was like the double hit, the brain going off the optic nerve. Right. Um, and then um, I just I would just was out of it. You know, it was like this was a track that I started racing on, you know, when I was 10 years old. And I knew it like the back of my hand, but I couldn't figure out how to get off it. I didn't know where I was on it. I didn't know what happened. I kept repeating myself. So um, that was the one that finished me off in bikes. And and that effect, um, it probably took me a good three or four weeks to stop feeling lousy from that one. And then uh, maybe six months after that, eight months after that, I bumped heads with my three-year-old. And and that was like hell on earth, man. Everything went black, and that was the beginning of the sort of the post-concussion syndrome nightmare. Um, and and so it was a really inconsequential hit, but it was in the same spot that I drilled the back of my head. Um, right, didn't cr- take much after all. No, no, and really, and really, that's the thing with concussions. When we talk about repetitive injury, um, you're you're in effect ripping the scab off an old wound, um, and so that one I had on the bike was serious so there was no question about it but I wonder where I'd be right now if I never bumped my head and if you know afterwards and it had been I don't know a year or two before I you know lightly tapped myself I wonder if I'd be in this boat
0: yeah I'm I'm with you I'm in the you know the same position with my head injury, obviously, because the severity of mine was because of one that I had, you know, the week before. Yeah. And yep. even talking about, like, ripping a scab off, they said that I had a bleed from the concussion the week before that was in the process of healing. And then when I played again, it, you know, obviously yeah. started bleeding again.
1: Well, you know, and one thing I was going to mention about that, you know, I mean, for the people who do know your story, I think I think that this is important to point out. And then it's super important for the people who don't know your story. Um, you are obviously the only guy that I know who lived after having second impact syndrome, um, and didn't have massive debilitating, um, uh, handicaps afterwards, you know, whether they were cognitive or, or whatnot, you know, and so we've never really seen a guy like you, um, come out of this in the way that you have. And so I think that you know, we were talking before about your athletic trainer and, and how quickly she reacted and how she saved your life. But I also think that that quick reaction probably staved off a lot of the um, negative effects that you could have had afterwards. I think Right. That-
0: yeah, because I stopped breathing and she was yeah. breathing for me when that all was yep. going down. So, yeah, I definitely right. credit her for, you know, being as, you know. Cognitively aware, I guess. Yeah. Um,
1: well, and it's and it's a huge, huge endorsement for having athletic trainers on sidelines. Where would you be if she wasn't there? You'd exactly. Be, yeah. You'd be in a you'd be in a nursing home or something if if you were that lucky. Right. But you'd Probably be dead. Yeah. So I,
0: you saw the concussion movie,
1: right? I did. Yeah. I went. Uh, I went to the premiere in Boston, and I was originally I wasn't going to see it in a theater. I didn't think I could handle it. But when we got set up, you know, it was like a week before it opened. I went and saw it. Um, And I had prepared myself mentally for much worse, Um, you know, because it was like... And I like bringing up old feelings or... Oh, yeah. You know, it was... Well, you know, so um, I've had so many head injuries and um, I've had post-concussion syndrome for five and a half years now that, um, you know, it's very difficult to diagnose CTE in the living. I mean, I know that... uh, gary smalls and julie julian bales had this um deal going at ucla where they were able to do a pet scan but it doesn't seem like that's been universally embraced by the scientific community, uh right. community but they were able to you know somehow spot tau in in living brains but i guess um you kind of uh sort of wonder you know at this point if it's uh You know, if it's something that you've got going on upstairs.
0: Right. It's definitely something to think about. But the thing that's interesting to me, too, is like you got how many former NFL players who played their whole lives. And it seems like only a small percentage of them, you know, are, you know, react to the to the CTE in that way, in that like they want to kill themselves and stuff like that. And they have very like they're very aggressive. Right. That's interesting. Um, well,
1: I think I think that we've heard the worst case scenarios, but we haven't heard probably the middle of the road and the, uh, and the things that, uh, you know, guys do that are right. Those are a little bit lines, out of character, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and certainly I don't think that anyone who has ever died that there's been a question about has had the type of autopsy, you know, where they look at these kinds of things. So right. I'm sure that we have buried many people who otherwise would have shown would have shown it you know right
0: I also brought up the movie because my one beef about it was well I have two beefs about it actually the one beef was that when they talked about athletic trainers they said they're only good for taping knees I was like that is
1: such bullshit yeah 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 Yeah, and I know that that raised some hackles in the athletic trainer community for me I didn't read it um as negatively but I didn't think it was such a slam but but if I were an athletic trainer I to view that differently. And yeah. I just I know honestly, that they get
0: compared to like personal trainers sometimes or right. they get thrown in that category and they're far from personal trainers so no. uh, Dude,
1: I've got the utmost respect for athletic trainers so I, I can see where you're coming from yeah. on that. What was your other gripe?
0: My other gripe was I thought it was like it was pretty anti-football and anti-NFL and I, I cuz I always say that stressful. if I could go back I would right. do it all over again. I would just tell someone that my head hurt. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't have had the second impact syndrome, obviously, because football has done so much for me. I had so much fun playing right. it. I would never right. want anyone to not play because they were afraid of getting CTE, right? Because you right. could die in a car accident when you're, yeah. you know, 10 or 13. 13 or whatever, however old and never lived to
1: experience the, you know, the symptoms of CTE. So I think that the negative portrayal, I think, though, is justified when we know, you know, I mean, listen, I'm the most pro sports dude in the world. Right. My thing is this people when they tell you that or when you tell people that you're a concussion educator, they want to run in the other direction. They think that you're anti sports and you're the biggest wuss that ever lived when when in reality, it's tough I really to keep it, that balance. Right. It really is. But I'm like, I mean, I feel like I'm one of the toughest guys on the planet for living and feeling like this every day and just grinding through it. No, I agree. But, yeah. Uh, it's it's so, so, but what I was going to say about the, um, about sports is they're important, man. And there's no question, but, but I come at this more from a, um, a standpoint of really recognizing when you get injured and taking the proper steps to heal the right way with like return to play protocol and addressing symptoms and making sure that you're really ready to go back out there. I agree hundred percent. Right. Yeah. So I think that where the NFL was involved, they didn't really give a rat's ass about that. You know, you had Elliot Pellman who, you know, I shouldn't even utter his name, but you know, he was, the, he was the head of the, uh, uh, you know, the head neck and spine committee and the guy was a rheumatologist, right. You know, and he's also the guy that sent Wayne Corbett back on the field for the jets after he was knocked stone cold on the, on the uh, field. Right. And that, hey, buddy, get back out there. This is really important for your career. So, you know, I am not an anti-football guy. I think that there are we're starting to learn some things about myelin and kids ages and stuff like that. But, you know, I, I really don't have a gripe with football. I think that the NFL, um, if they want to keep moving along and they want people to keep playing, that they really ought to treat this appropriately, not only to take care of their players, but I think that, um, you know, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before, but we've talked about it, I think. Um, It's like our, our, uh, as a nation... Our best and in, in biggest medical advancements in the last 10 to 15 years have been learned on the battlefields in, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, life-saving techniques that, that we never had before, but t- technology and, and uh, methods have helped us. And then all of these things have been brought back to level one trauma hospitals when these doctors rotate back to the U.S. And so people who are in car crashes and, you know, industrial accidents and things like that who... Um, maybe never would have survived or surviving because of what we've learned on the battlefield. And I think that if the NFL were to take uh proper steps with something that you know, look, occupationally, we can't we can't mince words. There is a high amount of concussions playing pro football. You right. just physics and it's in its physiology so and injuries in general it's like 100% you know absolutely. injury rate what, what other industry has that right so if the nfl were to be proactive and study this and apply some methods maybe that would actually benefit everybody because of not only the money, the power, the clout behind them, but the research possibilities and the fact that they've got a captive audience of guys playing who essentially are cannon fodder. They're, most of these dudes are done after four years and they're out on their ass. Right. So that's, that's kind of my deal with the NFL. I'm, you know, I love to watch it every weekend and, and it's my greatest sort of crisis of conscience. But I know a bunch of former players now and, and it chaps my ass how they were treated.
0: No, I, I agree 100%. I'm still watching the Packers every weekend, uh, even though they struggled really bad last weekend. Well, so. I'm a
1: Patriots guy, so everybody's going to hate me that's not from New England. <laughs> yes.
0: Well, I'm, I'm in the facility right now recording uh, with all the New York Jets doctors, so they were, right. they were happy. Um, uh, can we backtrack a little bit about the athlete's mindset? Uh, mm-hmm. about, like, pushing through injuries and stuff like that. Do you think that there's any way to kind of overcome that obstacle or to change that mentality?
1: No, nope. yeah, I don't.
0: I, it, I don't. It, it's such a tough thing because if I put myself back in my 17 year old shoes, I think I would have a really hard time mm-hmm. making, you know, that decision to say, you know what, Coach, I'm not going to play. You know, I, I just don't see myself doing it.
1: Um, well, this is where – I think this is where – as people who've been hurt and who understand sort of uh, what there is to lose, this is where we can guide the discussion. People want to excel. There's no doubt about it. Everybody, you know, most people that are living want to excel, whether that's with their job, whether that's, you know, in athletics or whatever. And to, and to try to tell, you know, put a throttle on people and try to pull it back, I don't think it's going to happen. So I don't think that with a real competitive athlete that you're ever going to be able to get them to... Um, Tone it down, you know, and I also think that due to the nature of the injury, um, you know, they don't even know sometimes when they're hurt. And, and I think that, you know, like a, a prime example is, you know, I was I was racing once and ate it and kind of woke up on my back and I was surrounded by EMTs and um, I started to get up and I could actually hear myself telling the EMTs that I was fine as I was kind of coming to. Uh-huh. You know, and I'm thinking to myself, why the hell am I saying that I'm fine? You know, <laughs> do I look and, fine. <laughs> right. And and it was weird, but it was like I was on autopilot. So, you know, there's a saying that in the concussion community that um, trusting a concussed athlete, um, you know, to tell you that they're fine is like tr- uh, trusting a drunk driver, you know, that they can go back out and drive. Right. Yeah. So it's 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 that's why we need you know um athletic trainers that's why we need people who understand injuries good emts or whatever right uh, you know on the sidelines
0: yeah and even a couple uh weeks ago i interviewed um a chiropractic neurologist yeah or, did i say hire? i meant interviewed um, i think
1: you said interviewed but
0: okay either way um the mushy concussion brain. I can't remember what it I said. I'm right there, with <laughs> Yeah. Um, but he was saying that when people have concussions, from like a proprioception standpoint of like how your body moves, you're also more susceptible to injuring yourself, so, you know, not just your brain, you know, other – your limbs because you don't – you're not as in control of your body. And it's yeah. the same thing like when you're drunk. If you're drunk driving, mm-hmm. not only are you, you know, endangering other people's lives, but you're also – Gonna hurt yourself too.
1: Yeah. Well, hey, a case in point, and, and and this is sort of uh this dovetails both both things. Um my vestibular uh situation you know, it's kind of rough. I had to go to vestibular therapy, and that, and that vestibular deals with your balance and it deals with your perception of where you are in space. So you reach out to grab something off a shelf, you know that you only need to move your hand such a distance to grab it. But when your vestibular system's whacked out, you'll find yourself doing things like walking into door frames um, you know, shoulder blocking door frames, right. Your yeah, same thumb, kind of stuff. Thing, yeah. Right. You know, but, um, you know, to give you another example, um, if I were ever pulled over and they suspect, you know, suspected that I had been drinking, I could not take a field sobriety test because I physically can't balance well enough at this point. Um, because my vestibular system has been damaged to be able to, to go out and go through those things. And also my ocular reflexes, nystagmus and things like right. that. So I would actually have to say, you know, listen, guys, you got to give me a breathalyzer.
0: Do you have, uh, like a doctor's note or something that says that or
1: no, no. But you know, I think normally people are trying to talk their way out of the breathalyzer. I'm not sure that people have ever tried to ask for it right into the breathalyzer. So you got that
0: going for you. All right. Um, okay. Let's talk about,
1: um, so you created agro bikes. That's a racing team. Yeah. I start, well, it was actually, we started it as a bike shop. I started it with, um, Um, a business partner and he was interested in bikes. He rode more sort of like ramps and freestyle and stuff like that, you know, parks. Um, And in pretty short order, we saw that we had sort of two different objectives. You know, he was he was really a money guy. And, you know, I like money, too. But I was more into uh, coaching our team who, you know, initially I started the team as sort of an advertising vehicle. And the team started out pretty small. It started out here in New England you know, we had like three or four or five people the first year and it actually blew up. Um, so, you know, we had the shop going, we had a mail order, uh, we had a, a trackside vending rig, big trailer, you know, with a concession window and all kinds of stuff. And, um, and we did pretty well, you know, financially, but most of it, we dumped back into, you know, I bought my business partner out after the first year or year and a half. And most of it, I dumped back into, into my riders. Um, and, and I think that, you know, at one point we had 50 here in the U S racing for us all over the country. Um, and then over in Europe, um, I had another, uh, team manager, a guy named Stu Dixon running it for me over there. And then I had, I don't know, like five or six riders in, uh, in England. So it, it, you know, grew to be worldwide and it was, it was kind of neat. And we had some riders who started out, um, you know, locally and, um, were virtually unknown and they ended up going on to be, you know, um, you know, top five, top 10 national people. So we've had uh, world champions on the team and national champions and it's pretty cool.
0: Cool. Um, so now you're, n- are you not a part of that
1: anymore? N- no. Um, so in 2010, uh, that was my last concussion on the bike. I kept the business open for two more years, but you know, we had like the exclusive vending deal at, at the races in this area. And, um, it was really hard for me to be next to the track because I couldn't get out on it. You That's know? what I was so,
0: trying to get, get to next was, yeah. you know, what, what were some of the emotion that you felt when you couldn't play anymore or play or ride? I mean, and you know, and had you kind of get through that? And you said that you removed yourself from it cause it was yeah. hard being in front of your face. And when I was at Rutgers, as I a, was a student manager for the football team, and I was like, I would ask myself that: I'm like, is mm-hmm. this helping me because I'm around it, or is it suck because I have this right. in
1: my face every single day? I think that there's an illusion that that you have to stay involved somehow in the sport that you love, and I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, so I would be there at the races. Look, and I felt terrible. I mean, because I had, you know, I had post concussion syndrome. I was dizzy. I was nauseous. I was barfing. Um, you know but I had a I had a uh obligation to to you know the track and to the people that were there to still be there but you know it was like being there it was terrible because it was like being around the thing you loved I mean I guess it's sort of like how you know an ex-girlfriend that you I was knew, just gonna say know. that yeah. yeah it was like t- you know you were you both were no good for each other but you still in, and you weren't together anymore, but you still saw each other constantly.
0: Right. And yeah. That was suck.
1: Yeah. Oh man, I just can't handle this. So, right. um, you know, so I, I, I felt like I owed it to my team to kind of keep things going, but then I just, I got to the point where I couldn't stomach it anymore. And, and so I shut that down in 2012 and my English guys, um, raced for me right up until last year. And then, uh, and then another factory, uh, you know, by by a factory pick them up. And so they're all sort of running over there still under that.
0: All right. Um, what was your like lowest moments, um, during that time of when you were, you know, still kinda of around the sport but you know, feeling bad for yourself and not wanting to be, you know, around it anymore. And how'd you kinda of get through that? Was there anything that helped you get through those those low points? And like what advice would you give to someone in your I mean, even yourself, like back at that time or someone who's in a similar position.
1: Yeah. I think it was less about the sport than it was about feeling like I was gonna die. You know, I mean, I remember one morning and it was just like constant throwing up, man. And I mean, it's it's a really it's not a great analogy because there you know, there's kids out there and stuff, but man, it is like the worst hangover you have ever had in your life that puts you on a couch on a Sunday. Head splitting headache. You know, you can't open your eyes. They're burning, um, you know, and you're nauseous, like the seasickness feeling and um, just your head's pounding. And so um, that going through that every day and not having that go away, you know, I mean, imagine imagine having that hangover where you get put on a couch and really all you're going to do on a, on a weekend day is sleep it off. But right. you wake up the next day and it's gone. It's not gone. It's still there. And, you know, you've got to go to work, you've got to do all these things, you've got responsibilities, you've got a wife, you've got kids. And, and it's like, how am I even going to get through the next six minutes of my life, let alone the next day? Um, so that was my low point was actually sitting in front of the to- toilet throwing up one morning. And my um, wife uh, had taken the kids to school and she was out of the house. And, I'm, and I was thinking, man, I, I got to kill myself. This is, you know, this is so bad. Then I don't want to kill myself, but I just can't ha- uh, handle this anymore. Right, thinking it, that it's going to be like this forever, right? Yeah, it's like you know. So it's it's not that you want to die, but it's you just can't handle that much pain anymore. Right. So, I I sucked it up, and I had an appointment at my um, uh, doctor's that morning, and I would see my concussion docs twice a week. And I went in there, and um, the room was full of kids. Man, that were like eight to you know. 12, 14 years old. And they were all, a lot of them were there for sports concussions. And, and I was like floored, you know, it was like, I started crying. I had to leave the room. It was like, I kind of had this epiphany and it was sort of like, um, if me, you know, this guy who has the benefit of life experience and, you know, I had been in this accident that I prevailed through, I learned how to walk again. And that was very difficult, obviously. But if, if I can't hack this, you know, how are these kids going to even begin to describe this, you know, to doctors or their parents or how are they going to fight through it? And I, I sort of felt like a real jerk, you know, right there that I was, that I was thinking about tapping out, even though, you Put know, things hard. in perspective a little bit. Yeah. And and it was, and it was kind of like the, um, you know, I hate to say it, but it was like the, you got to do something uh, moment, dude, you know? And so um, I guess, To to answer the question about what you can, what I would tell myself then, or what I would tell other people, is that, you know, we find ourselves in these positions. But um, everything that I've seen from a competitor is that, you know, when a competitor is given a roadblock, they're going to find another way. They're going to find something else. It's like water finding a natural uh, slope and just going with it, you know? So, whatever you were doing probably, you know, wasn't going to go forever, wasn't going to happen forever. And, um, sometimes, you know, decisions in life are forced upon us and we have to, we have to roll with it. We're always rather, you know, you don't have a lot of control. So, so I guess long story short, um, it's that really when one door closes, another one opens and that's like the worst cliche in the universe, but, but it happens. And, and I never, ever, ever would have figured um, 10 years ago that if somebody knew me for something that it wouldn't be, you know, racing for BMX, for my yeah. business, you know, um, and, and it would be for talking about concussions. And that was the other thing at that point, I, it was like, all right, man, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to live. And at that point it was like, if I'm going to live this shitty life, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, my, my wife and my kids were fantastic and they really kept me in it. You know, I mean, it was like, I can't stain them with this, you know, and, right. and, do myself in. But if I'm going to live like this, I've got to be honest and I'm going to have to give it a hundred percent and try to tell people what this is like and try to warn them and try to advocate, um, that, that you really need to take this stuff seriously. Awesome. Um, can
0: you talk about some of the things or therapies that have helped you through the process that kind of help alleviate some of the symptoms and then yep. let's get into, um, how and why you started the knockout project, which is Her. where we met, uh, ultimately.
1: Yeah. Yep. Um, so the therapies that have helped, uh, you know, one, I went to a real sports concussion center here in, in uh, Massachusetts in, in Springfield. It's called the Bay State Sports Concussion Clinic run by two guys. Um, uh, Julio Martinez Silvestrini is a doctor. He's a physiatrist. So he's a sports medicine guy. And the other guy is a doctor named Zachary Marowitz and he's a neuropsychologist. And both of those guys started this thing up. And, um, you know, both of those guys really saved my life. You know, I mean, it's in a number of different points. But um, so so getting in and talking to those guys, it was almost like hitting a Ph.D. level class and understanding all of a sudden why why you were feeling this way uh, physically and emotionally. And, uh, you know, it was uh, it was it was kind of interesting to go from this barren wasteland of doctors who didn't know what they were talking about or didn't even talk about things with con- you know, regard to concussions to going to these guys who could basically explain why everything was happening. So, um, so that was a big deal. Uh, th- from there, they put me in vestibular therapy. They put me in vision therapy. Um, uh, you know, we also um, over time dealt with the emotional aspect of it um, because I was really sinking. Uh, depression was pretty heavy. And, uh, you know, I mean, you, you, your chemical, uh, you, you know, the, the way that your chemical levels are neurochemical levels and things like that change over time. And certainly when you take a hit and it displaces them from mood centers, you know, then all bets are off. So sometimes that needs to be managed. Um, so I don't really have any problem telling anyone that, you know, now I've got to take or I have been taking, um you know, like a, uh, uh, an antidepressant to handle my mood. And it was the best thing I ever did because I was always sort of, um, pre-disposed to hating, um, you know, thing, antidepressants and things like that. You know, my dad always made no bones about, it. he thought it was, you know, quackery or not necessary or, but I, I really suffered for probably six or eight months before I decided that I really had to do that. So, um, so anyway, that helped. Um, what's interesting is that not all, um, uh, fields in medicine play, play nicely together. So, um, I actually visited after somebody went, uh, to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and they recommended it, a, um, an Atlas orthogonal chiropractor, um, when they deal with that, that C1, um, you know, and, and what happens, I guess, with a lot of, You know, you'll find there'll there'll be definitely there'll be neurologists who will take me to task for this and say, you know, that's nuts. But um, that C1 bone is not held by ligaments and it can sort of rotate. And um, that's sort of the difference between life, death or paralysis, you know, when that thing starts around. Um, But when it moves just a little bit, it can it can rub up against nerves that run through that uh, spinal area. And so, um, I went and visited this guy and he said, Hey man, you know, he goes, look, I don't think this is going to handle and take care of all your problems. He goes, but it may fix some of them and it may help you a little bit. And at that point, that was all I was looking for was to get a little bit of relief. I didn't think there was going to be any 40 yard bombs for a touchdown to make a, you know, I, I knew it was going to be a game of inches. So, um, I said, all right, man, let's do it. You know, and he had taken x-rays and triangulated on him, And I went back and we had this adjustment, and it was really weird, man. That was on a Friday, um, and I thought I felt better, but I didn't want to put too much belief in that until we were able to quantify it. And then I had vestibular therapy set up either the following Monday or following Tuesday. And so we went through it, and, and um, on the beginning of the week, I had these graded assessments. They would, they would measure my balance and you know, my vestibular air, you know, the area, and they would um, they'd put a grade to it. And so, long story short, I did feel better at that point. It had knocked some of the um, the nausea and the balance issues off. Um, and I went in, and uh, we did all these things, and they said, no, this can't be right. And they made me do it all over again. And um, and I said, this is probably, and they came up with the same results. And I said, this is probably a good time for me to tell you that I went and saw this Atlas Orthogonal guy. And nobody in the room knew what, what that was. What you're talking about, that like, Alicia
0: Why? went to see one of those guys too, right?
1: Yeah. She saw a guy that's pretty famous and well-known in um, New Jersey. And I saw a guy in Western Massachusetts and, and I I feel bad. I can't remember his name, but he really did help me out. Um, and so, but it was interesting because my doctors and all these PTs were like, I have no idea what that is, you know, but we just saw it because I, I was there twice, you know, twice a week, every week doing, doing my stuff. And so, um, there's no doubt that that vastly improved Uh, It didn't cure, but it vastly improved where I was at. The other thing was um, acupuncture. Um, I had that suggested to me by um, uh, the dad of a lifelong friend um, that I grew up with. And the dad had read my story or heard about my story, and he actually bought me a whole round of acupuncture therapy without me knowing. He went in and he paid for it. Oh, he
0: really believed in it then, I guess. Yeah.
1: Yep, and I went in and I was kind of like, man, you know, again, like I don't know if this is bogus, but but um, I I learned that A it was super relaxing and B it really did wipe out my nausea. And I sit there and I struggle because I know that some of the medical community thinks again that um, you know uh, acupuncture's you know, bogus, but this guy, um, he's on the staff at a big local hospital as an alternative pain medicine guy. He's got his own practice. He was like a two time, um, U S acupuncturist of the year. And it really did after about two weeks, knock my nausea out, which had been horrendous and unbearable and constant to that point. Nice. Yeah.
0: Um, all right. Those are some good tips for for people who might be, uh, suffering from post-concussion syndrome that they could try some of those options out. Um, All right, now let's
1: talk about how you started the Knockout Project and what the inspiration behind all that was. Sure. Well, it was really that room, you know. I mean, uh, with all the kids in it, when I said that I had to do something, I didn't really know what I had to do. I just knew that I had to kind of get the word out. Um, and so huh, in talking, you know, with the two doctors at the, um, the sports concussion clinic, you know, and again, I was there with these guys all the time. And I became known as this dude who uh, demanded answers. You know, I wanted to know what they were doing. I wanted to know why they were doing. I wanted to know what they expected the outcome of of that stuff to be. And we developed a pretty good rapport. And I guess at at a certain point they said, hey, we think you'd be really good to come in and speak to um, a crowd at this, um, you know, adolescent sports concussion thing. And so we had like five speakers and I went last and I spoke. And it was one of these deals where um, as I was speaking and sort of talking about you know, the stuff that I'd gone through, I could see all some of the football coaches in the front row that were there were kind of getting wide eyed. And I saw these guys. It was almost like this look like, oh, man, that's happened to me before. And I didn't realize it, you know. Right. And so that sort of uh, that video went up on YouTube. Yeah, I'm gonna link that
0: up in the show notes so people listening to this can go back and check yeah. that
1: video out. There's a better quality audio one on Vimeo. Um, Vimeo, okay. That, yeah, but the, but you know, it went up on YouTube and um, the audio was a little funky, but all of a sudden I started hearing from people and I was like, wow, you know, and, and it was like the fellowship of the miserable kind of came out of the woodwork, which was a little bit tense when when you're not feeling so good yourself and you've got people leaning on you um, in those kinds of numbers to that extent. So, um, you know, I, I, I sat there and I do most of my best thinking when I'm laying in bed. And at that point I was doing a hell of a lot of it. I mean, I was still working full time somehow, I don't know. And, um, you know, I, when I got home, I'd go to sleep right away when I got home and I'd sleep all through the weekends. But, um, I kind of came up with this idea for the knockout project. I know I bounced a few names off a friend who um, she was an ad exec in New York City, and then came back to you know live in this area. And she said, "No, I really like this one. I think this is good." So we stuck with the knockout project. I put a blog, um, you know, it's sort of a website platform up. I owned a um, a website hosting company in another life, and uh, and so I sort of had all the servers available to me. And, um, really the catalyst for the first post was when junior killed himself. Um, my wife and I were, and I still had a horrendous post concussion syndrome at that point. My wife and I were driving back from, um, Boston and, uh,
0: you're like, I'm doing this now. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. You know, we, we heard on the radio that, uh, he killed himself and I freaked out and it was like, I know what happened. I'm sure I know what happened. And I told my wife, I said, if we find out that he didn't shoot himself in the head, that's all I need to know and literally like 40 minutes later that came out and I, here I am, I'm pulled over on the side of the mass pike and I'm crying and I'm losing my mind. Um, you know, because at that point, this guy was, he'd played for the Patriots, you know, obviously I, I knew him when he, you know, he played for San Diego and, but he was a tough guy. He was a warrior and I, and, and it really made me question myself again. It's like, this guy's such a badass. if he can't make it, you know, um, through that kind of thing what makes me think i can right. you know um but so that was the first post on the project and it's been largely um you know positively accepted Awesome. and then you to be a part of it
0: yeah you you contacted me around that time too and i shared my story and yeah yeah it's a, a great you know platform which, for sure so what which, would you say by the way
1: you're you're um Uh, the value of athletic trainers post is still historically the number one post on that website and still gets all kinds of hits from colleges that, uh, you know, you can tell that they parse your work through classes and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's really well.
0: I'll post that up in the show notes, too. Thanks, Jay. Um, What would you say the Knockout
1: Project's, you know, mission is? It's really to educate people about the severity of concussions, you know, and I think that, um, I think we're still figuring out our mission. You know, I mean, the neat thing about about running something that you created is that you can sort of change it at will or you can adapt to a need here or there that you didn't see when you first started it. So um, I think that the sky's the limit. I mean, we're still, you know, I still talk to all kinds of people. I talk to, you know, pro athletes. We'll get emails from, you know, um, NFL players' wives every now and then or players themselves. But I mean, we hear from everybody under the sun, whether it's a regular, you know, person that fell in the driveway or, you know, um, you know, whether it's a professional wrestler, it's really interesting. And it's, and it's shown me that, um, you know, concussion care is just so lacking in this country and it's starting to catch up. But, but I think that we need to apply the principles from sports concussions so that we can treat people who are injured in accidents. Um, that sort of thing. i one of the, one of the glaring holes that I've noticed is that, um, people who get hurt and are on workman's comp, sort of have a really tough road to hoe when it comes to post-concussion syndrome and dealing with that stuff. They almost always get saddled with a doctor who doesn't know what they're talking about or doesn't care what they're talking about. And, and those are some of the most miserable people that I've run into yet. So that's a real problem. And I think that that's something eventually I might like to try to help tackle. Cool.
0: Um... So you said a lot. You get a ton of people reaching out to you, asking you questions and stuff. So what's been the most eye-opening experience or message that you've gotten from someone that maybe was like a realization of like, all right, this is why you know um, I started this project or something like that. You don't have to name names, but just no. give an example.
1: Um. Well, it's 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 extremely um, um, rewarding. You know, you feel happy when somebody thanks you profusely because you were able to put them, you know, point them in the right direction as far as, you know, looking for doctors, um, that sort of thing. But I think that the most eye-opening experience really has been the amount of people that, um, you know, I've heard from that are sort of on their last rope. You know, I mean, they're... It's it's crazy, you know, I mean, you'll be out at dinner or something and a message comes through and it's somebody who's thinking about ending their life because they can't see past the next 20 minutes. So does you know? that
0: scare you and freak you out? Or like, what do you do when, when you get a message like that? I
1: respond right away, man. And it's and it's a little bit of a weird deal because, you know, now you're involved in this thing where you can't afford to just hide out, um, you know, if you've had too much. So there are times when I'll disappear you know, off social media for a while and I'll take kind of a mental breather, but I'll always answer messages. Um, but that gets a little intense, man. And that's like, um, and I have to remember where I was sort of when you were at that point in that position, you know? And so it's important to tell people, Hey, you know, and it's not blowing smoke up the rear ends to say, look, things can get better. You've got to apply yourself and you've got to do some things. Um, but here are the doctors who can start to sort this out for you.
0: Right. Uh, cool. Uh, let's backtrack a little bit. What's being done in the sport of BMX in terms of health and safety, you know, with mm-hmm. the advent of, you know, increased concussion awareness?
1: Sure. Well, there's there's, um, you know, there was sort of a consolidation in the, in the late um, 2000s of, of um bicycle leagues in the in the country there were two big ones that were sort of competing and now there's just one usabmx and they're running out of arizona and a lot of my good friends are still employed by these guys uh, and in the last couple of years they've come up with a um, you know a concrete concussion policy that has to deal with you know if you get injured in a race you can't just come right back there is a return to race protocol that does involve you seeing doctors and, and having some sort of a release but um that's only for national races and so um it's a huge step it's an important step but i would like to see you know at some point that policy get circulated in the rule book so that everybody, you know, who gets a rule book can can eye it and be aware of it, and it doesn't get sprung on them at a you know at a national race that they travel 1,200 miles to. That guess what? Your weekend's over, and, and that way they don't have p- parents freaking out on them, which is kind of tough anyway. Sometimes you do. Um, yeah. But can't get away from that. <laughs> no, and 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 you know, I mean, I've been instrumental, I think, in a little bit in opening some eyes there, but re- really. Um, having Donnie, Donnie's been a friend of mine for a long time, Um, you know, and it's tough to, it's pretty easy to just, you know, ignore me, but it's tough to ignore, you know, the, uh, you know, the 2008 Olympic uh, bronze medalist when, when he's talking about how important this stuff is. So his addition to the knockout project board was important. And, And Donnie has been a really good advocate in somebody who's been not afraid to take people under his wing and make some noise and, and do these things. So, um, you know, to answer the question, they're making strides, and I'm really proud of USA BMX for doing that. But at the local level now, where a lot of these tracks are run by, you know, under independent ownership, um, I think that's where things might slip through the cracks a little bit. And so I, um, I would hate to, to try to force uh, you know, a local track owner you say, "Hey, you got to have a trainer on hand." But uh, uh, I think at some point, either that's going to be necessary, or it's going to be necessary, really, to get the word out to every parent that goes, you know, that, that takes their kids to these tracks. That look, this is something you've got to deal with. You got to know about, um, and you got to pay attention to it and take care of it.
0: Right. That that's awesome. Um, so, do you? Is that? I guess kind of kind of goes to my next question as. Um, What are your ideas to improve concussion diagnosis, treatment and management, not just in BMX, but maybe just, you know, in sports
1: in general? Yeah, well, it's it's tough. And and man, I don't know. I know that there are a lot of intelligent people working on on this issue. Um, I've been dying to get an invitation to the BU Mad Lab, the Boston University uh, Mad Lab where dr goldstein has been working and and he does a lot of stuff in conjunction with the cte center but he does a lot of stuff um you know with blast injuries with the military and things like that and this is a dude who is like on the cutting edge of understanding the forces that impact our brain and so i think that that's a type of a person who can give us an idea what the thresholds for exposure are um, when we get hit right. and from there maybe we can begin to develop some sort of an idea but there's um, still so much unknown that it's like there really is i mean but you know look we're heading in the right direction there are sensors uh, uh you know like uh there are sensors made for helmets for various helmets you know it's not just football helmets there's there's sensors that you can affix to any kind of a helmet now right. and that will give you sort of a um I don't want to call it an idiot light. It's not going to tell you for sure that you have a concussion, but it's going to read um, things like shear and G's, and it's going to say there's there's a probability that you ought to take a look at this person. Right. And you know, so those things are available, you know, on on um, for individual users, and they're available for teams. But again, it's up to whoever is monitoring that right. to really give a rat's ass.
0: There was also a article in the New York Times today or recently that. Mm-hmm. Um, talked about field surfaces and synthetic turf and how a lot of fields you know they they need to be be maintained and a lot of you know schools and you know towns get these synthetic turf fields thinking that they don't need to maintain it anymore but you know eventually they wear out and they become too hard and then that that's been seen to cause concussions as well so just yeah stuff like that in the future and i think there's a lot of room for, for improvement
1: I think so, and I think that you know, uh, I think that there's a lot of things to work on, but I think that people have been falling since the beginning of time, and I think they're going to fall until the end of time, and it doesn't right. matter how they're going to do it. So it's it's really about you know realizing you know a that somebody's hurt or, or compromised, and then b taking care of it, and and again you know going back to the beginning, I think that um, the knowledge now that you know if you get hit and you see stars. Uh, that's an indication right there. That's something that people need to kind of take care of, and it's uh, uh, you know it's 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 difficult, but we're moving sort of slowly. Right in that direction.
0: Um, all right. So you're also a father of two, and yes. I wanted to ask you how you feel about your kids participating in sports, and if you worried about them, you know, experiencing the same thing that you did. I love that they still it, do. Yeah.
1: Right. Well, I love that they participate in sports. Love it. And, um, you know, my son Chase has just turned eight. He plays soccer. Probably the funniest kid I've never actually met, but that I just read <laughs> what he says. He's a wild man. You know, he's one of these guys. He's like uh, he's he's either going to take over a third world country by the time he's 13 <laughs> or he's going to get arrested for espionage, being a hacker, or he's going to become the president of a bank. I just I don't know. I man. don't doubt any of them. No, he's 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 really out there. What's um, your favorite chaseism? Uh, he's he's had he's had a bunch, but um, oh god, lately his kick has been you know that TV channel ABC Family. Yeah, I've, I've, it's on cable. Yeah, yeah, they show like kids shows. Well, I guess they're changing their branding. They're renaming themselves Freeform. And, okay. Yeah, right. Whatever. But uh, but every time they say ABC Family is going to be Freeform, Chase screams at the tv it's not catching on you know <laughs> <laughs> he wants nothing to do with it he's a traditionalist he's funny <laughs> so um, he's a nut but yeah, so back to your kids playing sports yeah right? so he plays soccer and i'm a little bit worried about that but but his coaches have been really cool and they're and uh they don't advocate heading which is awesome which is now and, a rule right that, well now it's it's a it's a general rule but i don't know that every league has to really adhere to it uh um, right you know so um but, but, you know, two years ago, um, when he started playing or whatever, his coaches were like, Hey, you know, if you don't want, you don't want to head the ball, that's cool. We're cool with that. so that was great. Um, but I worry about him and my daughter is a gymnast and she's really good. And, um, I see her
0: winning medals every weekend. Yeah. yeah,
1: She, you know, she, um, you know, she's a state champion as of last year and she's really dedicated. She has wonderful coaches and, um, you know, I mean, there's a there's a high incidence of injury in that sport, too. So um, I love that they play sports. Um, I'm totally worried about them because I don't think it's possible as a parent to disassociate yourself from freaking out about your kids. It was like, you know, I, it was funny when, when um, my daughter first started competing. I was sitting there watching and I'm like shaking, man. I was like going to throw up. I was the biggest basket case ever. And, um, and I thought about the juxtaposition of that. And like when I used to race, right. you know, when I got in the gate, it, you know, at certain points, you know, when, when you were feeling good, you were angry that these dudes were even on the gate with you. I mean, you were confident, but you're like, these fools shouldn't have even shown up. You know, everybody's just going for second at this point point. Yeah. and was completely different focus and anger and fuel and being intense. And then you're up there watching your kid up there and that's so you're helpless, man. And so I'm an absolute wreck watching them. And I don't think it's just from the concussion thing. I think it's just, you know, it's a parent thing in general.
0: Right. Um, awesome. Uh, so what's next for the the Knockout Project?
1: Uh, I don't know. You know, I think that, um, you know, like we said, it's neat to be able to run something that um, that you can respond to a number of different um avenues and things on you know i'm always networking i'm always trying to get people to share their stories um you know uh guys um lead the league and being difficult to get to share their stories um And and that's largely due to them, you know, um, every now and then uh, somebody will share their story, but they will want to do it anonymously, which I think is uh, it's important to still share the story. But I don't think it rings as well as if you
0: definitely not. Yeah. If you could put a face to the story.
1: Right. So I am trying to get more guys to share their stories because, uh, you know, women seem to uh, and young women seem to be much more proactive Um, as far as that goes and i think that's probably for the dudes i think that's got a little bit to do with our um our ego you know um
0: yeah like i'm fine yeah i don't need your help yeah you know
1: with the with the whole you know the whole racing thing i mean i've I've got a lot of friends that still race and and they'll private message me about concussions but then a lot of them don't talk about it in the open And, and originally when i got hurt and i started really talking about this stuff i sort of felt like the you know, the old lion that had been pushed away by the pride because he was sick. Nobody wanted to see that anymore. And it was like nobody needed me around to uh, to screw up their confidence and get right. them second-guessing themselves.
0: Well, I would like to, you know, per, or offer up like a, a partnership with Heads and Tails, and I'll try to help you get some more, you know, male stories. And I would like to, you know, interview some of the people that— you know, post their story on your website and then give it sure. the audio. I think that it would be a good collaboration um, of our, our both of our missions.
1: I'm up for it. You know my number.
0: Yeah, I know. Uh, someday I'm gonna meet you in person. You know, we <laughs> we started with Twitter and we worked with yeah. Facebook friends. Now we're talking over Skype.
1: One that's day right. when I go right. to
0: the the Massachusetts area, I'm gonna hit you up.
1: I'm gonna be I'm gonna be angling for best man in your wedding in another two years. All
0: right, that's. <laughs> <laughs> You're making a, a, a good um, what is I don't know the word
1: an uh, up concussion deal. There you go.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway, um, so where can people find you? You got the the blog. You got Instagram. Yep. You got Facebook. Um yeah,
1: my Instagram's really not that's just my own thing, you know. I mean, it's like I'm so saturated on social media that Instagram I just kind of do my own thing on and I try not to be super concussion dude on Instagram. Okay. Um you can you can get me uh well, you can get the website at www.thenockoutproject.org. We have a Facebook page for the knockout project. I'm also on Facebook and and sometimes people will message me directly or friend me and that's cool. That's fine. As long as you don't mind uh, you know, a constant barrage of weird stuff. My kids are saying, or weird stuff I'm saying, you know, it's like, uh, you
0: should send a friend of us just for that alone. Yeah. Was, yeah. You know, highly entertaining.
1: Of, well, it's, it's weird. I'm not one of these dudes. that's going to set up my own page, you know, but it's like, God, I, at some point I feel like I almost have to, because it's, it's like, so I think you know, people come in and they're like, I'm a, you know, I'm going to friend this guy. And, and then all of a sudden they realize that I'm like a loose cannon <laughs> and I'm posting weird videos and stuff. So no, it's so good. Um, <laughs>
0: All right. Let's I, th- thank you again for taking an hour away from your family and after work, and I, I really appreciate you you taking the time for to do this interview. Um, yeah. I just want to finish with what your New Year's resolution is going to be for 2016. I
1: don't believe in New Year's resolutions. I and, think and that why if that? Uh, I think that if something is important enough to implement, you should do it right away and not wait till a new year. That's so, a valid argument. Yeah. Yeah, that's my thing. So, uh, so you know, strive every day, but don't don't wait for one one to come around.
0: Right. It's a good excuse to get something going, but
1: that's right. Or to be lazy, maybe just say, hey, I don't have anything planned for the next year. I'm just gonna kick back,
0: <laughs> chill out. <laughs> right. All right, Jay. Thank you so much. Uh, no sweat. I appreciate it too. All right. Talk to you soon.
1: Later.